Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. We're in, in the Hebrews chapter eleven, and last couple of week, couple of weeks ago, anyway, uh, we looked at just the previous verse, which mentioned Moses, the introduction to Moses, at least by name, in this uh, faith chapter. This uh, these exemplary men and women. Uh, prior to the time of Jesus and the earlier scriptures who had faith. Uh, But the emphasis uh, previously, even though mentioning Moses, was was that of his mom and dad, his parents, and and their faith, uh, and talking about that. Well, what we're going to look at tonight is Moses and Moses' faith. Uh, He is commended by God for his faith. Now, Essentially what we're looking at and what these three verses are dealing with is that Moses was convinced that standing with God's people and forsaking the riches of the world was much more beneficial than the opposite. Um, And that's the challenge we really have here uh, in these three verses. Now, we will see uh, as we get into this and as we look back in uh, the... Uh, the occurrence of these events uh, in the book of Exodus with Moses, a lot is not said. Uh, We know from the beginning of chapter 11, now faith is the the substance of things not seen, the the evidence of things in our life. Um, The substance there, the ground, the foundation being the word of God. The evidence being us living it out. So uh, when it talks in verse 24, when, it, when we open, by faith, Moses. Faith is always undergirded. It always has a foundation in the word of God. But we're going to see that when we come to Moses, what we end up with Moses is we get this initial story of Moses as a young child, and then we see him as a grown man. Uh, we don't know what happened in those intervening years. Now we can speculate. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, um, but there's, there's, it's all speculation. Uh, but some way, somehow, uh, God communicated to Moses. Now, we know later on in Moses' life that God communicated to Moses in ways that he did not communicate and does not communicate to the vast, vast, vast majority of mankind. I mean, how many of you have heard God speaking to you out of a burning bush and the bush wasn't consumed? If you raise your hand, those people in the white coach know who they are I'm talking about. They will be here shortly. Um, how many of you went up onto a mountaintop and, and God handed you tables of stone? 
they wouldn't have been big, probably fit in the palm of, of the hand. You know, we usually see, in the t you know, these are huge stones, tablets, you know, that, you know, when you get the pictures. But no, these fit in the palm of his hand. They were just, they, they were, the, it was the first palm reader. But anyway, um, I know, that's terrible. Okay, so. They don't have palm readers anymore, do they? Wasn't that the first um, palm pilot, palm reader? Anyway, whatever. It's terrible. So go to Israel, everything falls apart. Anyway, um, he got that delivered by God to him through an angel. He got this revelation. He got this booming voice coming out of the mountain. He got the lightning and the darkness. You know, that's unique. So uh, perhaps, we don't know, perhaps earlier in life, uh, that's not recorded for us. You know, God communicated in some type of way like this to Moses. But certainly Moses believed the word of God. We will find out. And it starts in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So when he was come to years, in other words, when he grew up, when he matured, when he became a man, um, when he could stand on his own two feet, as it were, uh, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, as with the previous ones mentioned in this chapter, it was by faith Moses did what he did. Now, I mentioned this, but look at Exodus chapter 2. Uh, I mentioned it without reading it in verses 5 through 11. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. When she, saw, when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. So she had her own child and nursed her own child, Moses. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. But then look at verse 11. And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So we have this huge gap of time from verse 10 to verse 11. We've got the story of Moses and what would happen, and, and ultimately Moses would be weaned by his mom. Uh, and I read a number of different thinking uh, on this, you know, how long was this? Some people thought it wouldn't be any more than six months at the very most that you would wean the child and then the child was turned over uh, to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Jewish thought on this, uh, thinking is it could have been as long as four to five years. Uh, if that's the case, perhaps Moses was uh, the age of four or perhaps the age of five before he was brought to uh, Pharaoh's daughter to be raised. Uh, on the Chabad.org site, according to Jewish law, a healthy child can nurse up to age four, and a sickly child through age five. 
And when you think about it, um, it certainly is a lot more beneficial for the child to have the mother's milk than the, than, than the milk of the goats, uh, the calves, or the water in the Nile, or whatever the case might be, because the sanitary conditions at that time was not what we get in today's world. You know, we are very blessed in modern, not only America, but other parts of the world that are modernized on how sanitary things are. Uh, that was not the case back then. And so if you want a child to make sure he would be healthy, uh, you don't give him uh, the milk of a calf or whatever, you, you, the mother's milk, as long as you can. So if he was four or five years of age, uh, it's, I think it's unquestionable that his mother taught him the Word of God. I mean, what, what, if, if, you, if, you, if you're a believing parent, you have a, a child, a baby, uh, I hope you taught that child from really the very moment it was born uh, about the Lord. And as the child got older and could understand a little bit better, certainly a one-year-old doesn't understand that much, they're understanding more. And it sticks with them. Um, so this certainly, I, I believe, was part of his training, of his learning, which we see happen later on. Never left him. Uh, never left him because he ultimately smit that uh, Egyptian, uh, killed that Egyptian. So we don't have a lot of information about Moses's learning the Word of God, but he, but he certainly did. Uh, he could have been taught the truth in these early years, or perhaps, as I said earlier, God appeared to him in unique ways that we're not aware of. You know, we are aware of God appearing to him in the uh, burning bush, uh, the Mount Sinai incident. All of those would happen later in life. Uh, so there's, there's no reason that something didn't happen uh, perhaps, we, we're arguing from silence, uh, prior to that, to help solidify him uh, in the belief in God and his people. So, uh, what, what do we learn from this verse? The, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There's two things outside of Moses' faith. Faith, again, always based on the truth always based on the Word of God, and evidence in your life. Two things I think we can understand. When he was mature, grew up, he needed to stand, as I put it, on, on, on his own two feet. Uh, each of us need to learn to stand on our own two feet. Um, now, you, the, the, the issue here is not vocational. You can make the argument, yes, that when you raise your children that hopefully when they can stand on their own two feet, 17, 18, 19, 20, whatever, uh, that they will become um, an independent uh, entity able to take care of themselves in this world. Uh, that is commendable, that is good, that is necessary, but that I don't believe is the issue here. It's standing on your own two feet spiritually. Moses came to that point uh, when he grew up. Each of us, we need to get to the place in our life, in maturity, spiritual maturity, that we stand on our own two feet. Uh, 
the very least that we need to do is, is learn the basic doctrines of our faith. And learn them well enough that you can defend them. If you had a Jehovah Witness that came to your door and denied the triunity of God, the Trinity, uh, and just said that Jesus, could you take the Bible and could you defend the Trinity from the Word of God? It's not enough to say, well, our church doesn't believe that. And my pastor says there is a Trinity, so you're wrong, he's right. That's spiritual weakness. We need to stand on our own two feet, each one of us. We need to be able to, to defend from the Word of God uh, the cardinal doctrines, whether it be the deity of Christ, the triunity of God, salvation by grace through faith alone, the inerrancy of Scripture, the bodily resurrection. Um, I'm probably missing a few uh, that slipping by. Moses, when he grew up, stood on his own two feet. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We need to come to that place spiritually. And that's one of the reasons we have Bible study. It's one of the reasons that you should go to a church that teaches, that preaches the Word of God. And, 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 and I am firmly convinced that churches should do expository preaching. In other words, you take a book of the Bible and you go through it verse by verse and you explain it, you expound it, you uh, unwrap it, as it were, for the people. You know, I have been in churches in the past where you get 52 varieties of John 3.16. You know, they read one verse, they tell all kinds of stories, usually three points end with a poem, and then the invitation is longer than the message. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the church is not for unsaved people. The church is for believers. That we are to be um, uh, fed, that we can grow in the Lord, and then go out into the highways and the byways, as it were, and do the ministry. So you, you, the church... now. You can bring an unsaved person to church. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the purpose of the church, for you to bring an unsaved purpose person to the church that he can hear a gospel message and get saved. The church is for the, for the, for the called out ones, the, the assembly of, of believers together. Um, so we need to learn the word of God. And all of that goes into, hopefully, equipping you. But... It's never enough. If all you do is hear, even if it's good teaching, whether it's on Sunday or wherever it might be, and that you, you're never going to get to the place where you can really stand on your own two feet. You know, the way I grew in the, in the Word uh, when I was first saved, and I was older when I was saved. I was 27. And uh, I witnessed everybody. And I got entangled with some people who uh, threw back at me things that I didn't have answers for. 
Uh, I talked to, at that time, the Worldwide Church of God, Ted Armstrong, Ted Garner Armstrong, Herbert, and Herbert Armstrong, I think, was alive. Uh, and, and their cult, and I, and I witnessed to some of them, and they threw me for a loop. Now, I was only a month or two in the Lord. Uh, I, got, you know, I talked to Joe, JWs and, and so on, and, and, I, and I couldn't answer. And I didn't want to be without an answer. I thought I have to have an answer for everything, but I, 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 I wanted to know what I believed and so I could stand on my own two feet and defend what I believed. So I would go home and I would study it. And I would internalize it. And I would memorize the verses that came with it, that when it came to that point down the road, whenever that might be, that I could say, no, you're wrong. Let me show you what the Word of God says. And that verse that you are defending your view of, you're taking it out of context, and you know, that type of thing. And so it's good to be in a, in a good Bible study. Highly recommended. Thank you for being here. I hope it's a good Bible study. Um, it's good to be in a good church with good preaching, but you really have to do it yourself as well. And, 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 and again, if nothing else, learn the, learn the basic doctrines of the faith and how to defend them that you can take the Word of God and defend the Trinity, the triunity of God. Um, and, and then when you start with the basics, you know, the resurrection and the inerrancy of the Bible and, uh, and, and deity of Christ and so on, then you can start branching out. And you, then you can learn why the, the Bible teaches a premillennial view. In other words, Jesus is returning before the thousand-year kingdom. And you can add a little bit here and a little bit there where you're defending. And then, you know, ultimately you're sitting where I am. You're teaching people. So I think you know, we're challenged by this. Um, Moses ultimately stood on his own two feet. When he was come to years, he stood on his own two feet. Um, we are being asked the same thing. Uh, to believe the word of God and act on it. Being the son of Pharaoh's daughter came riches, power, and glory. So uh, Moses had a lot going for him. Pharaoh's daughter, he was in the king's house, or the Pharaoh's house, king's house, same thing. Uh, he had all the, the power, all the glory uh, uh, at his fingertips, all of this wealth that he had, all the riches of the world. I mean, he had it really well. He, though, considered it more important to identify with the people of God rather than with the people of the world, if you will. And so he gave up a lot. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, we are told this, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, the, the maturing, the, the growing up of believers. See, if you're saved, you're a saint. Um, you don't need to be christened by any whoever, um, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, yes, God has given gifts of people to the church. Uh, he names them here, apostles, prophets, and those are no longer with us. We're not going to dissect this whole thing tonight. Uh, but evangelists, pastors, and teachers, God has gifted the church with good teachers. And that is certainly important. Uh, and, and we need to learn from teachers. We all learn from other people at different times in our life. 
but we need to internalize what we learn so we can stand on our own two feet. So they are given to us for the perfecting of the saints. That's maturing. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, that's a mature, a complete individual, a complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So uh, there should be unity of the faith. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be uni unity with all believers. Because sometimes people who are truly saved are truly wrong in a lot of what they believe, or enough of that that they believe that we can't fellowship with them. No, the unity uh, of the faith here, uh, I think, is the basics of the faith, that the cardinal doctrines, if you will, the basics of the faith. Um, and I can, I can fellowship with those of a different, let me use the word denomination, that I could never attend that church because of the, of, of the wrong teaching that the church believes, but I can fellowship with someone who goes to that church or is involved with it if they are solid on Jesus Christ and the cardinal doctrines. Now, when we get into other doctrines of the Bible, things might go south from there, um, but the unity of the faith. Um, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There has to be unity among believers in who the Son of God is. He's not a God. He's not another God. He's not a prophet, as Islam says, just a prophet. Uh, he is the God. He is virgin born. He is all the doctrines that come with it. Um, and so we need to be taught and understood, understand who Jesus is and internalize it. Uh, and that will lead us onto a, uh, a mature individual, onto the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Why should we get there? Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So we need to be grounded in the Word of God, especially in the basic doctrines. God does not want us to be children. God does not want us to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes along. Um, I've known people that they buy into everything that comes down the pike without discernment, it seems. We need to be a discerning people. Not everything is from the Lord. I, and actually, I would probably say most everything you hear out there is not from the Lord. Uh, so you've got to be very, very careful. Um, but we need to be mature. God doesn't want us to be children. And, and, and that's in a sense what happened with Moses when he was come to years, when he grew up, when he became mature, uh, age-wise, but also spiritually-wise, we see from what he did. God wants the same with us. Um, so, there are people out there that are, are looking to deceive. So study the Word of God. Study, study the basics first uh, and, and, and know it. 
uh, and, and, and make sure you understand and get grounded in it that you won't be shaken when somebody comes along and shows you a different verse. Um, there, there's, I'm sure I can think of a lot of examples. Uh, I, I think the Bible is extremely clear that those who are saved are saved eternally. That, you know, the old saying, once saved, always saved. Uh, you can, and, and that's true. But there's a host of people in the Christian world that will tell you you can lose your salvation. And they'll use Hebrews 6. They'll use this portion of Scripture and this and that and that type of thing. Uh, and they are just wrong. They don't understand the Word of God. So, so we need to understand it well enough so we are not um, pressured, or in the words of uh, the apostle in Ephesians 4, uh, that we are not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and their cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Study the word of God. Know it. 2 Timothy 3. And that from a child, speaking of Timothy, thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Timothy was taught the word of God as a child by his godly mother and uh, family, and he came to faith in the Lord. But the scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Um, and I'm glad the writer didn't say Old Testament or even the New Testament. Uh, all scripture. And we've talked about that before. Um, but all scripture. And, and so when we get to the scripture, you should be somewhat conversant. For example, if a Catholic comes along and says, you know, I believe the Bible teaches purgatory. And uh, we can, if we're, you know, when we die, we go to purgatory and our certain sins are, are paid in purgatory forever long we're there. And then we go to heaven. Uh, you know, can you prove them wrong from the Bible that there's no purgatory? Well, one of the problems there. Um, is purgatory comes from the Apocrypha books. So what you need to do is show them that the canon, the biblical canon, the 66 books that God gave us, God breathed, the Apocrypha is not part of it. And you can show that to them. Uh, and, and, and from the Bible and, and using the Bible. So you need to be able to do that. I remember I talked to one guy and, and, uh, and I said, show me anywhere in the Bible where you find purgatory. And there's a couple of times. I, I think I, I shared with you um, years ago I met with a priest who uh, a couple had come to the Lord and the mother and aunt of, I think the wife, wanted them to go talk to the priest. And they were brand new in the Lord, young couple. So they asked me to go, and I went. And the, and the priest came out with 
I don't know how many books. You know, he, he could hardly, you know, he didn't eat lunch that day. He was carrying books around all the place. Couldn't get a lunch in there. And so when we got to purgatory, he pulled out a book, looked at the, uh, uh, the index, found purgatory, turned to it and said, purgatory is ta taught in six, these six verses. And says, see, there's purgatory. I said, wait a second. Let's turn to those verses and read them before you just tell me it talks about purgatory. And he did. We turned to the first one and we read it. I said, where's purgatory? He said, well, let's go on to the second. Okay, where's purgatory? Well, let's go on to the third. Well, at the end it wasn't, he closed the books and left. But I remember a number of years later of talking with a, um, a Catholic Answers individual. And I said, where is purgatory? And he said, well, it's in um, Hebrews 1, verse 3. That's where he said purgatory is. And I said, well, let's read Hebrews 1, verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, talking about the sun, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged, there's purgatory. That's what he said. He had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And I just said to him, that's purgatory? Well, if that's purgatory, Jesus is purgatory. Because it's through Jesus, by himself, did away with our sins. There is no location, place called purgatory that we go to. And uh, he, 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 he didn't like that. Because um, he was trying to defend Catholic doctrine. So, so you need to be able to defend all of that thing. All of that. Uh, so Timothy could, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, and scripture is Genesis to Revelation. That the man of God, that believers may be perfect, that means mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God has given us his word that we can be mature Christians. Turn the... Turn the um, Page over. The second thing, you know, the first thing, we each of us need to stand on our own two feet. The second thing, the challenge we get from this verse, Moses refused to identify with the Egyptians. In the same way we need to refuse to identify with the world. Uh, he wanted nothing to do. When he, when he got to that place, maturity-wise, spiritually, certainly he grew up physically uh, and became a man. But spiritually, he came to the place that he wanted to be identified with God's people and not with the people of the world. Now, the people of the world, in, a, in Moses' case, the Egyptians had a lot to offer, right? Power, money, glory. But Moses turned his back on all of that to identify with the children of God, the Israelites. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. So Moses turned his back on, I have three things here. He turned his back on the riches of, of the world. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. 28. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. You know, if you put your trust in your bank account, your monies, uh, that type of thing, you're going to fall. Money is fleeting. Money can come today and go tomorrow. But righteousness and being with the Lord, you will flourish in your life. Proverbs 22, 1. A good name is rather to be chosen 
than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. What is more important to you? Your name, your reputation, or your money? Your silver and gold. I hope it's a good name. That when people think of, um, you know, whoever, Alan or uh, Earl or uh, Jennifer or any, Charlotte, any of us, put your name in there. They don't, that what they think of is a righteous person, a godly person, one who is willing to forsake the world for the cause of Christ. Moses was willing to do that, willing to give up all the riches there. Uh, Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon. You can only serve one. Doesn't mean you can't, doesn't mean you don't work, doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money. But um, your focus always, wherever you are, should be on pleasing the Lord. That's first and foremost. Um, I don't know how many politicians are really truly born again Christians. Uh, especially when you get high up. You know, maybe if you're on the local city council of um, Anger, it's different. But when you get up into the federal government and the Senate, and the, I'm not sure how many are really solid born-again believers. They may talk about it. But it seems to me more than often than not, they put together their power, their desire, other things than when what the Lord wants them to do. Um, we can only serve one master. It should be God. Now, secondly, Moses turned his back on the power of the world, the might that comes with it. He could have had that with the Egyptians. He was in, in Pharaoh's family. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. The devil takes Jesus. 40 days of, of fasting, and, and now he takes him, and he says, uh, the devil takes him up onto an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So the devil shows to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Now, it matters not whether all the kingdoms of the world were all the kingdoms that existed at that time or some way extrapolating from that all the kingdoms of the world throughout history. Uh, because certainly that is the intent of it, that the devil would give to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, not just at the time of the first century, but all the kingdoms of the world throughout history. Because Satan has, under God's sovereignty, that rule now. He is the God of this world, the God of the kingdoms, the God of the political system. And so he can give them to whomever he wants to. That's why when Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He didn't say, You're a liar. You don't have the power of these kingdoms. What he said was, You only worship God. Um, but all the kingdoms of the world, and ultimately Jesus will get those kingdoms. Revelation 11, seventh trumpet judgment. When that trumpet judgment is unleashed, it says, now all the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Christ. 
So he's getting them eventually, but Satan is saying, hey, you can have that now. I never plan on running for office. I may have run for office when I was in third grade. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I won it, and, and it forever marred my life. Um, I think I lost to little Becky. Um, and I would certainly have been a much better class president than Becky. It's personal opinion, but hey, it's my opinion. So I will never, ever run for political office. But I, I can imagine, uh, as you get into that, the allurement, the temptation to compromise, the power. You're always being feted. You're always F-E-T-E-D, you know, lifted up. You're always being wined and dined and, and put on pedestals. And that, you know, it, it becomes very attractive. And, and many people succumb to it. Uh, unfortunately, um, Jesus didn't. He wanted to worship God. He, and Moses did the same thing. He turned his back on the power of the world. Egypt being the most powerful nation at that time in world history. He turned his back on that. Thirdly, he turned his back on the glory of the world. All the glory that would have come by sitting in Pharaoh's court, by being uh, second in command, by uh, lifted up, the pomp and the circumstance. Uh, can you imagine being carried around with slaves? You're, you've seen those old movies, and uh, you're, you're sitting in that, that chariot type of thing, and the slaves are carrying you around, and you got you know, this pretty gal that's fanning you and standing over you. Uh, that's my wife that's doing that. You know, just, you know. Still got that fan, honey, from our honeymoon? But anyway. Um, you know, you know the, the glory that comes with that. Um, Moses turned his back on that. Isaiah 5.14, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself, and opening her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp. See, normally when there's glory, there's pomp that comes along with it, the parades and all of that but their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Hey, if you live for glory and pomp and all of that, you're going to end up in hell. Is it worth it? Is 30 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever length of time it is, worth an eternity in hell? No. 2 Corinthians 10, 10 17, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you want to glory in something, glory in that you know the Lord that he is your father, that he is your savior. <coughs> if you want to glory in anything, do that. Don't glory in your accomplishments. Don't, you know, um, I like sports. Well, I get sick and tired of these people. You know, they get, they get a little first down and they're, they're, you know, they're strutting around and, you know, choo, you know, that type of thing. And uh, like they're the second coming of... Um, Whomever, Paul Horning, that'll date me. Anybody know Paul Horning here? Yeah, that's right. Anyway, the Packers, yeah. It just bothers me. Why don't you, you know, just get up, go back to the huddle, score a touchdown, throw the ball to the referee, go back, you know, no big deal. The only reason you can do what you do anyway is because God gave you that athletic ability. You know, he can take it away just as quickly as you got it. Um, anyway. 
glory in the Lord. Don't glory in yourself. And I realize most of these athletes are not believers. Um, I understand that. Um, but anyway, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul pleads with the believers. Here it happens to be Rome. It's applicable to all of us. I beseech you, I plead with you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. But then he says, don't be conformed to this world. The thought of conformed is don't let the world's values and system and culture mold you into their way of thinking. Uh, it, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a jelly mold. You know, you made jelly? I used to love jelly, not jelly, jello, jello, not jelly, jello, close. I used to love jello when I was growing up. You know, but when it's in the, when you make it, you, you, you get a pitcher of water and you put these granules in it and you stir it around and basically it's liquid. And if you pour, it is liquid. If you pour it out, it's going to run all over the place. So what do you do? You put it into a mold. And then you put it in the refrigerator and you let it set up for a few hours or whatever. Uh, and is molded into the shape, whatever that shape might be. It could be shape of an apple, it could be the shape of whatever the case might be. That's the thought here. Don't let the world mold you into their value system. Moses rose above that. He would not let the Egyptian world system mold him into how he would live. We are to not let the world system mold us into how we live, what we think, what we do. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That only comes by the word of God. So, uh, what we, you know, two things. Um, Moses grew up spiritually, and he identified with the people of God and God's culture, if you will. We are challenged to do the very same thing. Then the next verse, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. <coughs> There's a choice that all of us have uh, as believers. We can choose to suffer with God's people or we can choose to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for a short time. The choice is ours. And sin is pleasurable. If sin wasn't pleasurable, do you think anybody would choose it? No. Sin is pleasurable. So, first suffer affliction. If we choose to follow Christ, it's a conscious action that we choose. We're going to be hated by the world. John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it had hated me before it hated you, Jesus says. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. 
But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. The unsaved will persecute believers. We can see it happening more and more in our society. And it's going to get worse. We need to choose to suffer affliction, to suffer with our brothers, if it comes to that. That's a decision that you need to make now, not when it comes. Because when it comes, it's too easy to back out. I'll give you all kinds of excuses, but you need to de determine now. And 2 Timothy 3 says this, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, normally when you hear a message uh, ch uh, about challenging you to walk with the Lord and, and serve the Lord, oh, you're going to be blessed and, and you're going to get the fullness of joy and uh, all of this is going to come. And, you know, when was the, the last time that you heard a message that said, hey, I want you to walk with the Lord. Uh, I want you to, uh, to, to serve the Lord. I want you to live godly in Christ Jesus so you can suffer. I want you to suffer. I want you to be persecuted. Live godly and you'll be persecuted. Well, how many are going to walk the aisle for that one? No, not, not a lot of people, but that's what the Bible says. And, and so we've got to understand that and, and recognize that Moses understood that. And he was willing to suffer persecution. Um, the pleasures of sin in this instant for Moses was the comfort and the riches of Pharaoh's court. The pleasures of sin ultimately will take its toll. James 1.15, Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. If you go down that path, you're headed for destruction. I, I want to read you. How many of you have ever heard the story of Emperor Licinius and his wrestlers? Cheryl may remember this after I read this. She's probably heard it. She, everything I've said, she's heard before. Almost everything. Listen to this story. True story. In the days of the Roman Emperor Licinius, there lived and served him a band of soldiers known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. Fine, stalwart men they were. Picked from the best and the bravest of the land, recruited from the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. In the great amphitheater, they upheld the arms of the emperor against all challengers. Before each contest, they stood before the emperor's throne. Then through the courts of Rome rang the cry, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee, the victor's crown. When the great Roman army in 320 AD was sent to fight in Sebast, Armenia, there were no soldiers braver or more loyal than the band of wrestlers, the emperor's wrestlers, led by their centurion, Sempronius. Bad news, bad news reached Licinius, the emperor, that many Roman soldiers had accepted the Christian faith. Therefore, the decree was dispatched to the centurion Sempronius. 
If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must offer a sacrifice to our gods or die. The decree was received in the dead of winter. The soldiers were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. It was with sinking heart that Sempronius, the centurion, read the emperor's message. Sempronius called these soldiers together and asked, Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. Forty wrestlers instantly stepped forward two paces, respectfully saluted, stood at attention. Sempronius paused. He had not expected so many, nor such select ones. Until sundown, I shall await your answer, said Sempronius. In other words, renounce your faith, offer to our gods, or you shall die. Sundown came. Again, the question was asked. Again, the 40 wrestlers stepped forward. Sempronius pleaded with them long and earnestly without prevailing upon a single man to deny his Lord. Finally, he said, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed, but I am not willing that your comrades should shed your blood. I order you to march out upon the lake of ice, and I shall leave you there to the mercy of the elements. The 40 wrestlers were stripped and then falling into columns of four, marched toward the center of the lake of ice. As they marched, they broke into the chant of the arena. Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Through the night, Sempronius stood by his campfire and watched. As he waited through the long night, there came to him fainter and fainter the wrestler's song. Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. As morning drew near, one figure, overcome by exposure, crept quietly toward the fire. In the extremity of the suffering, he had renounced his Lord. Faintly, but clearly, from the darkness came the song. Thirty-nine wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee, the victor's crown. Sempronius looked at the figure drawn close to the fire. But off came his helmet and clothing, and he sprang upon the ice, crying, Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. It wasn't long that all died because of their faithfulness to their Lord. You know, when I, when I read this about um, Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, you know, I, I thought of this story. Those wrestlers unhesitatingly stepped forward. 
And they were willing, sans one, ultimately, to suffer affliction with the people of God. And the testimony was such that the leaders of these wrestlers, the centurion named Sempronius, obviously got saved, threw off his clothing, and went to the middle of the lake, saying, now there's 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win from thee the victor's crown. Moses understood that. We should be the exact same way. Winning that. Look at the next page, verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the treasures of Egypt. How much treasures did Egypt have? Huge amounts. He much rather wanted what Christ had to offer. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward, what ultimately he would get from Jesus. Now, to esteem or esteeming the reproach, literally it means to consider or, or an accounting. You know, what is best for me? What do I have to consider in this? Yeah, I can have the riches of the Egyptian wealth and, uh, and kingdom, but how long does that last? 50 years, 60 years? Or I can have the riches of Christ that last for how long? Eternity. When you figure that, there's no comparison. Now, one of the things I want to consider briefly what does it mean that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ? Now, Christ is Messiah. The question I pose, is this a superimposing of a truth on Moses' thinking? Or did Moses actually, quote, esteem the reproach of Christ? I mean, that's what it says. See, when you, when you study the text itself of what happened in Moses' life, and we'll look at a few things shortly, uh, there's nothing about Christ there. There's nothing about the Messiah there whatsoever. Uh, W.E. Vine said this, um, the reproach of Christ, not reproach for Christ, but of Christ, means Christ's reproach. That scoffing and mockery which Christ endured and which his faithful followers still endure was anticipated by the godly long before Christ became manifested, though they may have dimly foreseen him. So the reproach of Christ that he was willing, Moses was willing uh, to suffer for Christ. But was, what did he understand about that? Now we know that uh, they understood a little bit in the earlier scripture about the coming of the Lord. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10.4, they all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, um, I, again, I think this is, if you will, superimposing biblical truth from later revelation onto the account that was taking place, but if you're dealing only with the account taking place, 
you would never come to the inclusion, conclusion that, that the Hebrews writer here did or 1 Corinthians 10.4. And I'll explain what, I'm, what I mean by that a little bit. I mean, this is true, but you'll, you'll understand, I think, in a little bit. John 1.45. Uh, Philip finding Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Moses and the law wrote of Jesus. Did Moses know that he was writing of Jesus when he wrote those things? No. He knew he was writing about one who was going to come. He knew he was writing about one who was greater than him. There's one greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He knew there was a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Redeemer coming, but he didn't know it was Jesus. John 5.46, For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. But you can search the writings of Moses, and you will never find the name Jesus mentioned. So in what way did he write of Jesus? It's clear he wrote of Jesus, but in what way? Now, Moses weighed the benefits of God, Christ, versus the treasures of the world. Uh, the thing that captivated his understanding, Proverbs 13, 7 puts it this way, There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. See, poverty and riches from God's perspective is 180 degrees from the world's understanding of riches. If you have if you're saved and you have a spiritual heritage working with the Lord, you are richer than Bill Gates. Um, Bloomberg, what's his first name? Michael Bloomberg is a pauper compared to the riches you have. You may not have the wealth of this world. You may not drive a luxurious <coughs> Maserati or whatever the case might be and live in a 10,000 square foot home or whatever, but you are richer than they are. The narrative we have here of Moses and its estrangement from Egypt was being confronted by the Lord God. Look at these passages here. Exodus 2. It came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. So when the Israelites cried out, who heard the crying? Jesus or God? Or both? <laughs> so, when, when we read the account in Exodus, it's God. It's Jehovah. And he heard that and he remembered it because of the Abrahamic covenant. We could look, and we're not because of time. At Exodus 3, 1 through 6, 13 through 15, 4, 5, 5, 1. It is always in those passages and always throughout this um, uh, teaching or this uh, revelation that's given to us. It's always the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob speaking. Perhaps the best understanding of this verse is that this is an argument for the deity of Jesus or the deity of the Messiah through the inspired pen of the writer of Hebrews. 
The writer in Hebrews chapter 1 has argued through many passages from the earlier scripture that the Son, which we know as Jesus, is God. He is being consistent in his teaching that Jesus is better because he is Jehovah God. <coughs> and Moses considered the benefits of following God, the Messiah, better than anything the world has to offer. This is a correct statement. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the treasures of Egypt. But when he did that, who was he esteeming better? The God of Israel. Jehovah God. In, in every passage, it's there. From Exodus chapter 1 through the Passover, it's always Jehovah God. It's always God. Never is Jesus mentioned. Never is the Messiah mentioned. So what are we to draw from this? The, the writer of Hebrews draws on the understanding behind this, which he's established already in chapter 1, for example, that the Messiah is deity. He is Jehovah God. And so he puts that truth into what Moses understood. In other words, when Moses believed what Jehovah God was telling him and was following him, he was in essence accepting Jesus as Jehovah God. It's an argument for the deity of Christ. It's not the best argument because you've got to do it through a circuitous uh, route to get there. But that's the whole point of this. Um, you will hunt low and high to find Jesus or the Messiah mentioned in the first, let's say, 12 chapters of Exodus. It's not there. But you find over and over and over again the Lord God of Israel. And, and God spoke to, to Moses out of the burning bush. And, and then after the Exodus, after the Passover, uh, God spoke to Moses in that class. It's always Jehovah God. Always Jehovah God. And Jehovah God is Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews could say, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Because Jehovah God, who Moses was seeing in that burning bush, or spoke to him on Sinai, was the son, the second person, if you will, of the triunity of God. It's not incorrect, but from the earlier scripture alone, you would never get that. You follow? Moses, secondly, understood the temporal benefits of the world were much lesser than the eternal benefits of God and his kingdom. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. If you minister to the saints, if you continue to minister to the saints, God will not forget what you have done. He will reward you. 1 Corinthians 3.14 If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. There is a reward promise for believers if we are steadfast in our service. 2 John 1.8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. We're not talking about salvation. Once, once saved, always saved. Once a child of God, always a child of God. You can never be thrown out of the family. You are eternally secure. But we can earn rewards, and if we don't keep on in our Christian life, we're, we're going to lose some of those rewards. Come to the full reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's to be rewarded. Turn it over. There are five crowns that we can earn. Five crowns that we are offered. 1 Corinthians 9.25, an incorruptible crown. is given to those who have self-control in life. Then in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, there's the crown of rejoicing. That's given to those who share the Lord. Uh, here's what it says in that verse. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What is the crown of rejoicing? You have had a part sharing the gospel with someone who ultimately comes to the Lord, and you will get a crown of rejoicing when Jesus comes. Crown of righteousness. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, Paul says, but unto all them also that love his appearing. If you love the coming of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a crown of righteousness. How much do you love? You know, the older we get, it's, it's easier to, to, to have the, get this crown. Because we get sick, we're, we're, the body doesn't do what it expects and we, it used to do. Uh, things get more difficult in life. You know, when you're 20, when you're 22, you're looking for your bride or your husband. You want the kids. You want the family. You want the dog. You know, um, I threw that out for you, Jennifer. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> three dogs. What is more important? What should be more, you should want the Lord to come. Now, if you're single, you, you, you got your life ahead of you, you say, oh, I, I hope the Lord waits 50 years. You know, then when I'm 70, you can come because, you know, at 70, you know, I'm ready. Well, God doesn't put a prescription on this for age. All of us should desire the Lord's coming above everything in our life. Then there's the crown of life. These who, this is given to those who suffer for his sake. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Then finally, this is the crown of glory. This is given to elders who rule well. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. So not everybody can get this crown, uh, only the elders who rule well. But in Matthew 19, in 28 and 29, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration, in other words, when God turns things back like it was in the beginning, in other words, it's in the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Alva McLean says this about this verse, these two. This comforting promise of reward to the twelve, to the apostles, moreover, is extended generous, generally in verse 29 to everyone who has made sacrifices and suffered loss for his name's sake. <coughs> All such shall receive an hundredfold the immediate 
in close connection with verse 28 places the time of their recompense at the future regeneration of the world to be affected by the establishment of the kingdom. You may lose things in this life, but when you start in the kingdom, uh, you're going to be blessed a hundredfold. And what you get in rewards ultimately in the kingdom rolls over, if you will, into the eternal kingdom. And those rewards continue. Is it not better to give up the things of this world for the things of eternity? That's what Moses and this section is all about. That's the challenge that we get. We know the future is so much better than the present with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge for the word of God. Lord, help us to, to be like Moses, uh, willing to, um, uh, growing up, number one, but willing to embrace the, the, the believers, the, the, the citizens of heaven. Lord, willing to suffer affliction for your name's sake. Lord, knowing that the riches of eternity are so much, so much more than the riches of this world, that we are willing to forsake all that the world has to offer. Help us, Lord, to grow up, to honor you. And we will give you thanks for our, uh, the blessings that you give us. We thank you for our food, our fellowship, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.